0: Well, hello, everybody. It's Martin Keenan here with uh, this week's Infection Control Matters podcast. I'm delighted to say Phil Russo is joining me from Melbourne. Hi, Phil. G'day, man. Good to see you. And our special guest today is Professor Michael Borge from the University of Malta, but also the Department of Infection Prevention and Control at the Matter Day Hospital. And we're going to be talking about MRSA. Now, I can remember hearing Michael talk about MRSA about the time of my 18th birthday. I think uh, so. He's been working on this one for quite some time. So, uh, welcome, Michael, because you've just published a nice paper recently in Ashe, which is open access, so we can give everybody access to it. Nice to see you. Same
1: here. Thanks for the invite, Martin.
0: Can you take us back in time, then? Uh, you know, because I've I've heard you talk about how MRSA was endemic in Malta and what you've done about it over a period of time, because it's a nice paper looking at a series of interventions that have obviously made an enormous impact uh, on MRSA bloodstream infections.
1: Yeah. So basically in a nutshell, as you said, I am currently uh, the head of infection prevention here at Mater Dei. Uh, Mater Dei was inaugurated in 2007. And before that, we were at an older hospital, literally down the road called St. Luke's and From the mid-90s, we started to have major issues with MRSA bacteremias, with significant patient morbidity and mortality. And uh, despite moving to a brand new hospital from our previous Nightingale-style 1940s, design to relatively modern wards, our MRSA did not really change. If anything, it, it was even worse. And then in the early tens, obviously, like most other hospitals in, in the world, you know, we bought into the um, clean, uh, cleaner care, is, is safer care uh, approach, and mm-hmm. we implemented the WHO recommendations in terms of uh, advocating for better alcohol rub use, so making it available, and most of this was focused and we had a very strong focus on auditing with truly people employed to do this uh, almost full time at the start and then moving to the a time mm-hmm. basis and doing lots of feedback and uh, sort of meetings with the lower performing entities uh, trying to either cajole or, or sometimes even coerce uh, some improvement and things improved um, as, as we show in the paper you know and we used that or a uh, consumption as our as our outcome indicator and and things improved remarkably.
0: So you switched from direct observation to alcohol hand rub consumption as a measure. and
1: we published a very short letter a few years ago actually showing that the alcohol rub surveillance and our visual observation um, correlated quite well. And the reason we used both uh, was more in terms of. Behavior change, and this is the two words that continuously come up in, in, in our publication. As, as you know, I'm pretty convinced that, that our area is more of a behavior science than it is a medical science, but that's maybe another story. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we still used a lot of visual observations, and the reason is what we found was when we went with alcohol rub um, uh, data, it was very difficult to, to actually get this. I wouldn't say accepted, but even understood, you know, and uh, you used to get some very interesting replies. Well, how do you know that our alcohol rub is best than the others? I'm pretty sure they're using it for mattresses, etc. So in terms of convincing and motivation, we found that the observation data was more relevant, especially for the nursing profession in our hospital so we used both and therefore used the the two data sets to collaborate each other so if we had uh, areas where we had very high or up and then observation-wise it didn't really match then we looked into that and see what happens so what's happening kind of back, yes, that was when you'd find some very interesting uses for alcohol which were the, <laughs> faithful and and so there was that that element there
2: yeah can can i just ask what sort of feedback what sort of feedback were you providing to those to those staff with that consumption use and and the um and the compliance with hand touching
1: yeah so basically what we do as i said phil i mean most of our feedback relates to the observation and um, uh, audits uh we do give them the alcohol up once a year but they're not really interested in it uh, but they are very much interested in in the observations,
2: right. uh, because
1: they see a much more clinical relevance to them than than maybe the alcohol. Sure. Uh, so basically, at the end of the ward visit, the the person who does the observation, as I said, you know, we actually employ uh, someone specifically for this, and she's very well trained, and obviously because she does so many, she's she's quite reliable in in, in her interpretation. Uh, so at the end of the visit, she does an informal um, uh, feedback to the charge nurse, the nursing charge of the ward, or whoever is there at the moment. Um, and then uh, six monthly, we sent them a two pager, no more than that, because they were very clear. You know, don't give us um, dissertations, please. You know, so we just
2: not not too much to
1: read. Gaps. Um, uh, and if I must be honest, and Martin knows this because um, I had a very interesting program in IPS a few years ago, we primarily focus on the first moment. Um, and one of the reasons for that was that, you know, when we were starting to do focus groups with them, we still push the five moments, obviously, we still still included in our education. But what we found was that if we look at the first moment, most of the other moments follow it. You know, so uh, when we had a a campaign, when when we shifted our campaign, primarily focused on the first moment, then the other moments from the visual observations followed it or followed the trends quite quite well. So in terms of social marketing, you know, we wanted to keep it simple. We were very uh, apprehensive of um. Uh, confusing uh the the messaging so we stuck almost exclusively to the first moment and uh, again we've seen that that this correlates very well then with, with other moments including.
0: I, do, I do remember that very well unfortunately professor Pite was daft enough to take you on in a in a debate where <laughs> he was arguing all five moments are equal and Michael won at the IPS conference with his uh, one moment is more important than others. And I would never, ever take Michael in a, in a debate. He has never, ever been beaten. He could give him any topic and he will win. So, yeah, that, that was a, a lesson for me.
1: My ethos, my philosophy is, yes, of course, they're all important. Of course, they are all opportunities for creation. But from a behavior, this is, and this is, which brings me back to what I said, you know, at, at the beginning, you know, if we look at this purely from a medical cross-transmission perspective, then we we'll have to push the five moments. But we know that um, from from marketing research is that when people have too many options to choose, uh, there is a risk that they end up choosing nothing. You know? <laughs> or else choosing the one which is most convenient to them. And obviously for a healthcare worker, the most convenient moment mm-hmm. is after the patient contact. Because that is... Um, psychologically linked to self-protection, and it's therefore no surprise that every study in the world has shown that hand hygiene after patient contact is always higher than that before. You no, know? so so uh, we looked at this more from a behavior perspective, and from a behavior perspective, you know, as the the famous Clinton message, you know, keep it simple, so in, yeah. in, in this case, <laughs> because it's the economy. Stupid, and in our case, it's the first moment Stupid, you know. Yeah. And it worked, and we can show that it worked. And and behaviorally, and even from the feedback from the staff, you know, it, it became more uh, easy for them to understand. I mean, uh, pushing hand hygiene, as as both of you, I, I guess, um, uh, will will agree, is not exactly the easiest uh, thing uh, in a hospital. But it 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 made a difference, and and it did, and we can show it. And, um, uh, we have the data to, to show mm. that that even though we're focusing on the first moment everything gets improved mm. and then uh, at this time uh as you know martin I'm, I'm I'm I often come over you know I have lots of friends like you um, I love uh, seeing what's happening in other countries and this was the time when the UK had uh, at the end of the uh, in 2000, uh, when was that? When when, when it was uh, 2000 target. when
0: the targets came in here, yeah. yeah because exactly. you know, hand hygiene gets you so far, and I think you've explained why yeah. your hand, alcohol hand rub consumption chart goes up and then dips. So that's presumably you sorting out yeah. all the extra uses, but then you start going on to looking at prevention exactly. f- from a clinical point of view exactly. and, and device yeah. related. So let's talk about. So
1: we that. we took a leaf out of out of um, your book in the UK and. One thing that really struck us was the, the emphasis on root cause analysis. Uh, so we thought we'd give it a go. Initially, I was probably naive enough to think I could just copy and paste uh, the UK approaches. We use the UK modus operandi, you know, where the clinical team uh, runs the RCA and then comes back to the IPC lead with, with recommendations and identifies areas where there could have been factors involved and we did that and it was a complete failure because we didn't have the ownership you need for that. We didn't have the the organizational culture that you need to to run that. So basically we flipped it on its head. We forgot the, the concept that infection control is not the remit of the infection control department. We accepted that this was mm-hmm. in our case, you know, what we had to do. So we basically took it on completely so, we now run the RCAs from start to finish. Uh, we identify the cases from the lab reports. We go through the initial data. We identify if it's a relevant case that we should look into. And then we invite all the stakeholders to our place. We offer them coffee and get the ball rolling, but of course, making sure of two things. First of all, that it is not in any way intimidatory. Um, and secondly, that they have all the opportunities to, to provide their feedback and their clinical background. But we found that unless we drive the the program, it does not work. At least in our situation, in our
2: culture. I like in the in the paper, Michael, the way that you describe it. It's a really beautiful example of using data for action with the root cause analysis, and and. I like the way, you, was it hard to bring everybody together for that root cause analysis? So I can imagine initially yes. there would have been some hesitancy about that.
1: Definitely, definitely. You know? So um, uh, two reasons. First of all, there was um, uh, organizational memory of some, let's say, some attempts into maybe, I wouldn't say remote past, but more than a decade before there had been an attempt by some departments to start morbidity and mortality meetings. And unfortunately, at that time, and here we're talking about the 1980s, so that's mm. as much as the memory persisted. Mm. You know, the, these M&M meetings were then used by the then um, administration at the old hospital to actually institute disciplinary action against the, the uh, doctors. Mm. So obviously, they were really <laughs> Um, And we addressed that, primarily by getting our then CEO, you know, the different CEO, to actually make a clear declaration writing that all RCA findings will not be requested by the management other than the action points that were needed. You know, so that sort of assuaged the, mm-hmm. the the apprehension a bit, but still there was quite a lot of resistance. And then I said, listen, guys, okay, so at the end of the day, if you don't want to come, you don't want to come, but we we'll still have the RCA meeting and we'll still make conclusions. And they said, no, we can't do that. Well, come and join us, you know. And then after a few months, people realized that this was genuinely a self-improvement exercise. Um, uh, we have to persist, you know, and that's, that's that's the key in behavior change. You will always find challenges at the beginning. But we did persist. Um, I'm a bit of a bulldog, I think, Martin says sometimes. Uh, so when you have to be that in infection prevention, I mean, you can't just give up at the, at the first hurdle you find. Uh, and then it moved on. And, and it was really interesting, as, as we say in the paper, you know, because what the root cause analysis found was that our very high levels could actually be linked to basically three practices, you know, renal dialysis, peripheral IV cannulas, and central lines. And we started to get very clear indications of where our gaps in practices were. And this is the thing, you know, I, I always bring up the, the my mother-in-law metaphor, you know, and your mother-in-law comes to your house and the first thing she says, oh, we have a, a cobweb over there, you know. said, oh my goodness, I passed that that corridor, you know, 50 times a day and I haven't noticed that cobweb When she comes <laughs> in. And this is what the use of RCA was, you know. I mean, we, we were there, we were doing uh, IPC rounds, etc., but we we're missing most of these, you know, they were literally in our faces. So having the RCA's really um, focused our attention on where the areas are and again, um, the other big utility we found was that these were sort of patient stories. So whereas in the past, there were areas which we had identified, you well, know, for example, such as dressings, but the feedback was, well, yes, okay, we'll put it as part of the budget and then we'll see, And uh, uh, but these are very expensive, you know, so uh, they're much more expensive than what we have at the moment and we have the budget for them. But telling them, listen, you know, this patient died because this dressing was inadequate, and they couldn't do a proper observation from it, then that made a very big difference. So again, you now it's it's this social marketing, it's this behavior change. Uh, and with the interventions, things like, for example, in renal dialysis, moving from the non-tunneled fast cuts to initially to the perm cuts, you know, the ones you run under under the skin before they're inserted, and then pushing for or a rapid surgery for AV shunts. So this was really effective. The introduction of the dip score, the dressings. Most importantly, focusing on the just in case cannulas. You know those mm-hmm. that are inserted in in A oh, yeah, and and then yeah. have yeah. their use whatsoever. Just in case. Things. Yeah. And in the central lines. And in the center lines, we we use the IHI bundle, but as I say in the paper, with significant modifications. Mm. So, for example, we did not apply the Johns Hopkins ethos of having the nurse supervising the doctor because in our culture, that's not done. And the nurses were very clear from the start, you know. Don't even think about asking us to stop an insertion. That's not my remit. I'm a nurse. There's a doctor. We won't take it up with the doctor. So yeah, we had to find sort of compromises. So, okay, that doesn't work. Can we find something different? Well, I can tell you, listen, I'm really not too happy... Uh, assisting that doctor in in the insertion. And I'm not willing to sign off the insertion chart uh, with him because I'm not all that happy in the way that he or she has filled it in. So using these, then we could identify which maybe intensivists needed a bit more discussion uh, about their, their insertion technique. And again, this was done from the, the head of anesthesia, who is also, in our case, the head of ICU. So it's looking at, at, at what others have done. Yeah. That's the way I feel. You know? So, so it, it, you always
2: learn. Mm. So
1: this is why I love other hospitals, seeing what things are being done and the course from meetings. But you always have to adapt.
2: Just on that point, Michael, I did, that raised my interest when I saw that the nurses weren't prepared to supervise the medical staff with their, with their insertions. So, what did you replace that observation with? You had a, a checklist, was it that they filled out?
1: So, as we're uh, well aware, you know, in the, the IHI ethos is that the checklist has to be filled in completely, and if you don't do everything, then a wrong right. the insertion. And then the checklist is is supervised by by the nurse, who stops uh, the insertion if, if the checklist is not followed. Uh, we tried to do that. We had, I uh, think, about four or five focus groups with the ICU nurses um, as part of the implementation strategy because thankfully it was something that we had got a good budget from a, a new project that we were involved in. So this was our contribution. So again, we use the checklist more of a an aid memoir, you know. It's it's more of a, uh, a, a, a guideline stroke SOP. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but rather than using it on the whole, we sort of looked at this holistic approach, getting feedback more on the individual rather than on the insertion. So um, it's, in, in our case, it's, there is no way that there is nurse, because of our power distance culture, that the nurse would stop a doctor in a doctor's procedure. Yeah. It,
0: it That's interesting,
1: happen, yeah. Yep. But you still find ways and means of going mm. about it.
0: I think probably what helped you is some of the aspects that were coming out of the RCA were actually structural and not class as somebody's fault like the you know the gap of time take uh, it takes to find a shunt so so that's actually there, there was a oh we can do something here and it's actually not my fault it's not it's really not mm-hmm. personal and sometimes you know just leaving something in is sort of everybody's fault until it becomes a job of somebody to check every day so I, I i think that that must have helped convince people actually there are things we can do here that aren't personal to me and no one's going to mm-hmm. make me hold my hand up so yeah exactly um, you know,
1: the thing is you know, i mean to be fair let's just say there were very few instances where we really had to intervene to sort of uh, bring in people who were persistently um, non-compliant, you know, because one, uh, most of these intensivists knew what anamara bacteria was back from St. Luke's and back from the beginning of the hospital. And, and I always say, you know, I don't believe that any healthcare worker goes into the hospital wanting to do harm for for patients, you know. I mean, whenever we do harm, most of it is either because of lack of awareness or for many other behavior factors. So, so knowing this and and this was really again because we had the budget for it, we had the time for it. We were using it as a as a project implementation uh, exercise. So we met with the team, the whole ICU about three times. So, initially, it was to raise awareness, again, following the Cotter principles, you know, raising urgency, listen, this is a problem. Secondly, is this is what we think we need to do, but wh- where do you think we need to change our ideas? And then, thirdly, okay, so we've seen the problem, we've talked to you, you've given us feedback, this is what, therefore, we have concluded. So, you know, let's go and do it. And it worked, you know, right. So So, I think it's it shows that... Even in high endemic areas, things uh, can, can, can be improved. But we only uh, got a spot. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, Mark.
0: No, I was going to say, presumably over this time, you're feeding back some data that's showing things are improving because you have oh, yes, changes definitely. every time. So, so did you notice any change in the mindset of the staff? Actually, if we do this, it does. And so therefore, they're more willing to take on the next intervention?
1: Very much so, very much so. So, for example, you no, know, I mentioned the renal units again. This was something which they were really, uh, you could feel that at the start, they almost personalized these cases that they were getting, and they were seeing these these unfortunate uh, patients you know, dying from MRSA bacteria. So again, once we started to reduce the, the cases and we started, for example, the renal unit to have a, a chart uh, or a, uh, a sort of a notice board with the number of days uh, since their last MRSA bacteremia case, and then when we hit 500, we had a big do, you know, with a cake and the party. So it's it's what Kotter um, defines as as short term wins, you know, mm. celebrating short term wins. Mm. And uh, again, I, I quote this whenever I do I do my lectures. You know, Bill Gates says, you know, success um, makes people think they cannot fail, and and uh, this was really really important because. You know these interventions added on the time uh, that the nurses had to do. You know because doing things properly very often takes a little bit more time, so uh, convincing them that that time was worthwhile was was really essential. And these these uh, successes then obviously not only reinforce that motivation, but it also. Reduce the pushback that you will get. You know there are, you know, from the theory of uh, innovation mm-hmm. diffusion that there are people who will never uh, mm-hmm. accept innovation, never accept change. You no, know, but having success and and publicizing that success, so we used to issue six monthly updates. This this is where we've gone. where we have reach would would then sort of uh, make those those active resistors. Less active, mm. you know? <laughs> uh, so that's the second phase. Uh, but we only got to a certain stage, you know, Because, as you know, in behavior—it's—it's it's never possible to get one hundred percent compliance. We did improve, but we only reached a certain level. And then uh, we said, "Listen, I think the issue here is that we are—we—we we have so much, I coming into the hospital." And I had a student uh, who had done a a, a study. And at that time, about thirty percent of patients coming into Mater Dei were MRSA carriers. Mm-hmm. So, with that level of carriers, we said, "Listen, we have too much, too much background level of colonization. So, let's can we do something about it?" So, I mean, this was the time, two thousand and fourteen, where people were moving to risk-based screening. But we sat down and we looked at this again from a behavior concept. We knew that. It was not feasible for us for various reasons, you know. Whenever we tried risk assessments, it didn't work. What worked in our culture was centralization. So how could we centralize this? Basically, we said we go for universal screening on admission and we would do it all ourselves. So basically, I managed to recruit two care assistants and these individuals every morning go through the admission list of the previous day until eight o'clock in the morning identify where the patients are we go ourselves to the ward and we do the um, nasal and throat swabbing and what we managed to do because again we had big um, uh, concerns from the laboratory because again the laboratory have issues with hr they said listen we cannot cope with, with um, uh, 150 swabs a day uh, through our system so we said okay so if we plate them out on, on chromogenic media, and all we need from you is just to tell us whether there are colonies which are chromogenically indicative of MRSA. Would you be happy with that? And they said, yes. Okay, so that, that was not going to increase our workload that much. So basically, this is what we do. You know? So we screen the patients at the bedside, the carers themselves plate out the petri dish. They take it to the lab. They put it to the incubator. And then all the laboratory scientists need to do is just look at the plate. If they are pink or blue or the very chromogenic medium they're using at the time, they just say, listen, we have chromogenic uh, growth that is indicative chromogenically of MRSA. And when we looked at this, uh, we found that, yes, there will be a few tough epidermidis that, that may mimic MRSA on the chromogenic medium, but these are few and far Uh So we said, listen, for 5%. What we're gaining is much, much more than what we're losing from these 5%. We are digitizing And it worked, you know. So over a period of four years, and again, that's another paper that we have published in, in the Green Journal, um, our MRSA rate, our MRSA colonization on admission dropped from 13% to about 3%. Mm. Uh, And because most of these are what I call those revolving door patients, you know, so they leave the hospital today, having acquired the MRSA colonization during their week or whenever they've been there, they come back month or six weeks, you know, from the same issue, and now they're colonized. And then, so we managed to to cut that. And again, we saw a significant reduction in, in MRSA infections as a whole, and that's another publication that we did earlier. And especially in the MRSA bacteria. So yeah, I mean, this 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 was it was a journey, and I don't think. And if I have one take home, is that change doesn't happen overnight. Yeah. <laughs> no. Um, uh, it it takes, takes you ten
0: time. years to become an so. overnight success, doesn't it, Michael? That's the exactly. thing. <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: I think that. Yeah, I mean. It- no, no, I was going to say, I think
2: that's a really um, important point um, uh, that you make, Michael. Towards the end of the paper, you described, I think, the lag period of about 18 months to see an effect, um, which just makes you wonder about all the research that's been done and, and the RCTs that like, I think you might allude to that, that are done within 12 months, how much you can really take away from those when a lot of infection prevention is about behaviour and behaviour takes a long time to change. And, and 18 months is probably pretty quick also too with with behavior change in a, in a changing the culture of people so um it, it was a really interesting uh, i, I like the chart that where you demonstrate it's very remind me very much of the chart that martin i think you've probably presented a lot of the uk people have presented over the years of the decline in rates of of of, of um, mrsa with all the various interventions that have been required along the way, but but that eighteen month lag period, I think, is uh, is really important message to take home.
0: Yeah, I mean, I normally use John Otter's chart, but I, I, I make to come on your point, which is a good one about the you know research is only done over a year. When people are doing research, they're probably more likely to do the intervention reliably because they know they're taking part in a research study often. Whereas here we're talking about a change in practice, which maybe they're not that convinced about anyway, and they don't, you know, it's not for a particular reason. So is that why sometimes research studies work very well? But then as soon as you stop the research, people don't drift back to their normal practice or that, that, you know, their research period's over. We've got our paper, somebody's got his PhD, and the unit haven't been convinced. They, they were never actually really involved. They were just involved in a change in practice for a period, and they haven't really got, got anything embedded. Mm. Whereas this is more, is us together, isn't it, Michael? This is our this is our data, our hospital, and that's why you're seeing a more likely uh, uptake of the interventions.
1: Exactly. No, I mean, I, I'm always apprehensive of papers that show dramatic improvements uh, in a very short period of time. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's like, I always, again, I I, I love metaphors, as you know, so it's like a weight loss, you know, when people lose weight very rapidly from a very intense program, it's fine, and that probably can be maintained for six months, 12 months, 18 months, but then you will get fatigue, you know, so, so I think what, what, our experience from this intervention was that slow and steady is much better than quick Mm. and drastic. Uh, So we understood that in our culture, you know, this has been there. These practices have been ingrained there for years. There is no way that you can change ingrained behavior that has persisted for decades in a year. (laughs) No, and, and, uh, you can you can coerce and you can push and you can get people's you know enthusiasm for a short period of time, but once you then move on, then then um, things revert to mean. And to be honest, we saw that in real time, you know, due, from the COVID, because obviously, like most other centers, you know, once COVID hit, practically all IPC was COVID, 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 and we saw so we had to stop our MRSA screening, for example. Um, so that's another maybe uh, follow-up that, that we'll do for this uh, for two years because the, the lab uh, was so much taken up by COVID testing. And we, we saw that we started to get cases starting to increase again. So now we've gone back to where we were. And, and paradoxically, no again, with COVID, um, and we've talked about this, Martin, You know what we've seen was that our hand hygiene actually, um, deteriorated, ironically, uh, and one of the reasons which I'm I'm pretty well convinced is because we made so much emphasis on gloves. Yeah. Uh, at the beginning of COVID, oh, gloves, 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 that now the 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 issue is we have to wean them off gloves. They're, they hmm. they all they think about are gloves. So previously we have managed to reduce um, glove uh, misuse or glove unnecessary use um uh, and it's for back up and again I speak to, to, to people at, uh, at meetings and it's uh, it's a pretty um uh, common experience you know so again it's all about behavior. but
0: uh, just finally Michael I wanted to I'll oh, go on for no, I was I think the 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 other thing
2: I really like about what you've described in the paper Michael is it's almost like a co-design um intervention that you've That you've been successful with here because you've engaged with the healthcare workers and helped and asked them and worked with them to come up with the interventions, and I think that's a really important point in infection prevention as well. Because your point about you know. you can't just pick up a study's interventions and apply it into your own workplace because there's going to be differences and it might not always work. And that's a really important point out of this paper is that there are some beautiful studies around, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to work in your, in your environment.
1: We always say that, that um, uh, infection prevention is often cost-neutral or cost beneficial. And it may be the case, you know, economically, but more often than not, what we ask from our colleagues will increase their workload, will increase their time. So it was all about trying to see how we can minimize that as much as possible. So, for example, making sure that the alcohol is there at the bedside rather than having to get them. Uh, Making sure that uh, the screening is done centrally, you know, so it it didn't add any load on the ward and we minimized the load on the lab from this very customized protocol, you know? So I think it's something that... And and whenever we did ask something from the ward, again, the key was that we had managed to sort of instill a level of urgency. Mm. And and this is what... uh, Potter always says, and, I, and and something that I always believe in, you know. Unless you manage to instill urgency and appreciation of the need to change, then you can do 100 change initiatives, and it's very unlikely they're going to succeed. You know? so, but the urgency was really useful.
0: Yeah, I think it's interesting when we think oh, this is going to add time to people's work. Now, sometimes it really does, because we're asking them to do a new task, Sometimes we're actually asking them to do what they should have been trained to do in the first place. So therefore, because they've shortcutted, Mm -hmm. it's going to be seen as this is going to add time rather than actually if you'd have done what you're supposed to be doing all along, it wouldn't add any time at all. And now now finally, Michael, I just want to mention that many of the interventions like the um, increase in hand hygiene and all of the device related interventions Will be applicable to other organisms, whereas the screening won't be because that's specific for MRSA. So, did you see any impact on sensitive Staphylococcus infections, bloodstream infections during this period oh, as
1: yes, well? Definitely. So, so again, we showed this in the in the paper very briefly. So, as as you know, Martin, um, we use change point analysis. So, basically, I'm, I had a friend of mine, who's a very nice statistician, statistic. and uh, he, they can nowadays, you know, look at the trends. And identify where in the trends there were significant drops um, in in incidence. So, in terms of MRSA or three um, all three interventions actually show highly significant change point um, dips. But in the case of MSSA, the hand hygiene um, did not make a difference. Yeah. The screening obviously did not make a difference, but the line interventions did. And again, this mm. makes sense, you know, because yeah. Most of the patients in the wards, you know, are colonized by MSSA, 30%, if not more, so screening won't work. And hygiene, well, yes, but they're already colonized coming in, so it's 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 difficult there in terms of cross But if you're you're practicing lines properly, then the route of um transmission, uh, the portal of entry is going to be addressed. And this is what we teach our uh, undergraduates you know if you break one chain in the portal of entry and, and these are in the chain of infection in this case the portal of entry then you should eliminate the infection and our data uh, supports that
0: well that's been fascinating i mean we could talk forever i think yeah <laughs> there's lots of discussion still to be had in this one yeah. don't you Gretchen?
2: yeah there's a, there's a, so much in this paper i think there's a lot of lessons to be learned and uh, um
0: thank you for mm-hmm. writing it up michael it's really really well written and very clear and, and great to read and shows you that patience as ever is a virtue and perhaps to warn people we're going to start this but don't expect an impact quickly because sometimes if you are going to ask for management support for something if it doesn't happen soon they may pull the plug on you whereas this is going to show you that actually if you persevere you you can get there because 90% plus reduction in MRSA bloodstream infection over a 10-year period but it's still a 90% reduction is a fantastic achievement and the whole team deserves and the whole hospital deserves credit for that i think so thanks very much for joining us michael to talk about this and i hope people will enjoy reading the paper thanks thanks michael thanks michael and thanks phil for joining thank you cheers Uh, okay everybody we'll see you again on another edition of infection control matters thanks for joining us